Let's pray one more time together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. Lord, we thank you for the hope and the confidence that we can find in this passage of Scripture. Hope not, not based on us, just as Paul's confidence was not based on the Corinthians themselves, but that his confidence was based on Christ. So Lord, I pray that you, will have, that you would give us confidence in Christ for ourselves and for this church. I pray this for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Every Friday afternoon as, as I ride the bus into uh, West Kelowna along Highway 97, I'm confronted with a billboard that has an Asian toddler on one side and the quotation, helping people in need. This is church. Is that it? Is helping people what church is all about? What is church all about? Until recently, there was another billboard along Springfield Road with a crumpled up piece of paper and the words, Rethinking Church. Rethinking Church. Well, what should we think about the church? You know, the way that, that many churches in our culture have drifted from the truth, you'd think that that crumpled up piece of paper was actually a page from the Bible. But what is church, and what should we think about the church? These are questions that are worth asking. We live in an age of individualism. People want choice. They want their felt needs met. They want their personal preferences catered to. When you go shopping for, for clothing or groceries for anything, that consider the variety that is laid before you. A walk down the, the cereal aisle can be overwhelming. There's, there's low-fat cereals and high-fiber cereals and low-sugar cereals and high-sugar cereals. There's, there's organic cereal. There's cereal for kids and cereal for women. Cereal with a toy inside. Instant cereal. There are all kinds of cereal. But sadly, this individualistic consumer mentality has crept into the church. There are churches for the elderly. There are churches for family. There are churches for students. There are churches for bikers. There are churches for cowboys. You can even find churches for homosexuals as if that was any such thing. Is Sunday morning service not convenient? Well, there's a Saturday evening service. Prefer modern music? There's churches that have a one hymn limit. Don't like long sermons? There's churches with a 20-minute or less guarantee. Don't like pews and stained glass? Well, there's pews, or there's churches with couches and candles. People have forgotten what church is all about. And too often, churches become about them. Mark Dever says that people often view church like individual consumers doing their spiritual shopping for the week. Seeing what they, they can find of use that, that is down the aisle of singing or, or down the aisle of prayer or, or over here there's a, a preaching special. Over there in the conversation afterwards and then they, they pile it in, they take it in their carts and they go home to use it by the, for themselves all week. They treat church like their corporate quiet time. Now the Corinthians also had a pretty poor view of the church. Their attitude and their behavior made that abundantly clear. They were dividing over different leaders in the church. Many of them were rejecting Paul and his authority. They failed to deal with blatant, unrepentant sin in their midst, and they were proud about it. They were suing each other. They were actively engaged in sexual immorality and idolatry. They were gluttonous and drunk at the Lord's table. This is a horrific list of sins. But what about us here in this church? 
What about us? Now, we've had our own issues. But if our church was like that church in Corinth, I don't know what I would do. I asked this question last week. What would you do if you went to a church like the one in Corinth? Would you get angry? Would you write a nasty email? Would you walk away in disgust? And I asked, what does the Apostle Paul do? Well, he writes this letter. And he's going to deal very firmly and directly with the issues that are taking place in the Corinthian church. Paul is not one to avoid dealing with sin. But the way he does it is amazing. The way he does it is exemplary. He does it with grace. He does it with love. And in so doing, he models the very behavior that he is calling the Corinthians to. This morning, we're going to focus on the first nine verses of this letter. But, but the, the message of this passage is essentially summarized in verse 4, where Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Think again for a second, the, the incredible list of problems, rejecting Paul, failing to deal with a man who's committing adultery with his stepmother, suing each other, getting drunk during communion, communion. And Paul knows that the only thing that will produce the unity and the holiness that God requires of the Corinthian church is love. The biggest thing that the Corinthian church needs is increased love for God and love for each other. And their problems all stem from a lack of that love. And I would argue that any of the problems that we experience in this church or will experience in this church also come from a lack of God and a love for each other. The church is meant to be a representation of God on earth. The love and unity that we are to exhibit, that we are called and commanded to exhibit, is the love that takes place within the Trinity. Perfect, holy love. And the Corinthians fall woefully short of that standard. But instead of blasting them, Instead of, of waving his fingers at their face, which, which, if we're honest, would be our natural tendency, which, which I have to confess would be my natural tendency, what does he do? He encourages them. He loves them. He has hope for them. But how can the Apostle Paul have such confidence regarding the Corinthian church? How can the Apostle Paul have such firm confidence in the Corinthian church? There were a few of us who were, were here at the study at, at Scott and Stephanie Smith's house uh, at, during the time of, of my first call. In fact, David, I think this is the first time that you actually came um, as a, uh, as, considering becoming a part of this church family. And I don't know if you remember, but we listened to a sermon by C.J. Mahaney that was dealing with some of these very issues. And considering, do we, do we want to walk into the mess that is Gushigan Fellowship Baptist Church and, and to see God glorified in it. Pastor Gene, I'm sure you remember those circumstances very well. 
It was not a fun time. But we drew encouragement from this passage, from the message that C.J. Mahaney preached. And, and let, me, let me read this statement from, from C.J. Mahaney. And this, in, in many respects, uh, is really the, the basis and, and, um, and summary of, of this message. C.J. Mahaney says, Paul's exemplary attitude toward the Corinthians and his extraordinary affection for the Corinthians was created by his divine perspective of the Corinthians. I'll say it again. Paul's exemplary attitude toward the Corinthians and his extraordinary affection for the Corinthians was created by his divine perspective of the Corinthians. Mahaney goes on to say, when you are aware of the fact that God has acted on an individual in need of adjustment, an individual needs to repent, you will have faith for change and perseverance in the process if you have that attitude, and so will they. And so before Paul sets about confronting the Corinthians for, Corinthians for their behavior and attitude, he writes this introduction. These first nine verses. And this is no mere formula. This isn't just the polite way to begin a letter. Paul was writing here with heartfelt sincerity. So often when we read God's word, we, we look at the introduction, we just kind of gloss over it because we want to get into the meat of the message. But we do this to our detriment. There are glorious truths here, and if you don't get this, you won't understand the rest of this letter. Paul had a divine perspective of the church. Brothers and sisters, we also must have a divine perspective of the church in order to understand what church is all about. You need a divine perspective of the church in order to be a real part of the church. You need a divine perspective of the church in order to be used of God in the church to encourage and to build up the church. So how did the Apostle Paul get his divine perspective? What were the grounds of his confidence concerning the Corinthian church? Our attitude needs to be grounded on these things as well. So Paul's confidence for the Corinthian church comes from three main things in this passage. Call, Charis, and Christ. Call, Charis, and Christ. I'm going to spend most of, of my time on the first point because it really is the, the basis for the other two. First of all, call. In our culture, we often relegate our sense of call to a subjective feeling that comes from within ourselves. Usually referred to as we, we feel called to a specific ministry or a specific vocation. And that's why we refer to our job as our vocation. It's the same root. But Paul meant something far more profound. Whenever the Apostle Paul uses the word called, he is talking about God's sovereign decree. And he uses this term called three times in, these, in this passage. As he uses them as an adjective, first describing himself and then describing the Corinthians. So first of all, Paul's call. The Apostle Paul had a very high understanding of the call of God on Christians. And it is a miracle of God's grace that this man would be writing a letter seeking love in the church. It wasn't that long previously that this man carried very different letters. Paul had received the call of God on the road to Damascus in Acts 9 when he was still called by another name, Saul of Tarsus. And he was breathing out threats and murder against the church. He was carrying letters to the synagogues, giving him the authority to arrest Christians and to bring them back to Jerusalem. 
And so he rode towards Damascus, hell-bent on his evil mission to destroy the church. And then suddenly, a light shone from heaven, and Paul fell off his horse to the ground. And a voice came from heaven and said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul asked, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. So first notice that Jesus doesn't say, why are you persecuting the church, but why are you persecuting me? By attacking the church, Saul was attacking Jesus. It was attacking Jesus. And then Paul knocked him off. Jesus knocked Paul off his high horse and set him on the right path. Now he still went to Damascus, but on an entirely different mission. And when he went there, he met a disciple named Ananias, who told Paul, what his mission was, that he was God's chosen instrument to carry his name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, and also that he was called to suffer for Christ's name. Now, Paul's call was unique. It was at once a Christian call and an apostolic call. He was called to follow Christ, and he was called to, to, and sent, to be sent out by Christ on a particular mission to lay the foundation of the church. And we'll talk more about this when we look at Acts at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, but the the office of the apostle is marked by some key criteria. Apostles wrote the word of God, so it must be very evident who they are and the authority that they carried. An apostle must be a personal witness of Christ. We just saw that Paul had personally met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was personally taught the gospel by the Lord. Read about that in Galatians 2. The call is confirmed by an ability to perform signs and miracles. Paul cast out demons. Items that that had touched his clothing were were given to the sick and the demon oppressed and the, the sicknesses were healed and the demons exercised. The apostles laid the foundation of the church. And Paul tells the Corinthians in 9.2 that they, that they themselves are the seal of his, apostles, his apostleship in the Lord. That the Corinthians are the seal of his apostleship. And then right there in the very first verse of 1 Corinthians, Paul lists a, a, a member of the Corinthian church, Sosthenes. We first meet Sosthenes in Acts chapter 18 at the birth of the Corinthian church. Just turn with me for a moment, please, to Acts chapter 18. Look down at verse 17. They all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal, but Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Crispus had been the first ruler of the synagogue or the previous ruler of the synagogue in Corinth, but he and his whole family came to the Lord, so it seems that Sosthenes was his replacement. And then it looks like Sosthenes also became a Christian. And that Sosthenes was there with Paul in Ephesus as he wrote this letter to the Corinthian church. So the Apostle Paul had authority. He had an authority over the Corinthian church that was unique. But the Corinthians, many of the Corinthians, rejected him. Many had had chosen Apollos or, or Peter over Paul. There's the problem. There's the problem. 
many of the Corinthians who should have been submitting to Paul were rejecting him. And in so doing, they were rejecting the Lord. Rejecting Paul's authority meant rejecting the authority of Jesus. But the Apostle Paul knew that it was really God whom the Corinthians were sinning against. Their sin was not ultimately against him, but against the Lord. And regardless of their view of him, he was an apostle. Nothing they could say or do could change that fact. Parents, you have been given authority over your children. Even if they reject that authority, it does not change the fact that you still have that authority. The same was true of the Apostle Paul. It was a God-given authority. And Paul says in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, that it doesn't matter to him if he's judged by them or in fact by any human court, that, that he doesn't even feel qualified to judge himself. He says, the Lord is the judge. And if they rejected him, it was to their own peril. So from the outset of this letter, Paul reminds the church of his authority. Again, regardless of their view of him, he viewed them with a divine perspective. Paul knew God's call on his life, so he was free to respond to the Corinthians with love and grace. One of the, the interesting interactions that I saw in the hospital was, was between one of the, the, the doctors and one of the nurses. And, and this, this, so when you become a medical doctor, you have another level of, of specialty, and that's, to, that's what the, these doctors, many of them are, are pediatricians. And, and there in the hospital, one of the nurses was really talking down to one of the doctors. And I was, I was really dumbfounded by this, by his response of grace. He didn't really even feel that, that he needed to, to, to react to what she was saying. And he took it all in stride. And I said to Jane afterwards, I can learn from this. This doctor knew his authority and he didn't need this nurse to give him the authority. It was already his. This was Paul's view. It's not just the authority of, of letters next to his name. This is the authority that is given by God. But just as Paul knew of, of God's call on himself, he also knew of God's call on the Corinthians' lives. So he reminds them of it in verse 2. The Corinthians' call. Paul addresses his letter to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. As we've seen repeatedly, Paul wrote this letter to, to this particular church to deal with particular issues. This is the church of God in Corinth. Paul may have planted this church and may have had unique authority, apostolic authority over this church, but even still, it's not his church. It's God's church. This is not your church. This is not my church. This is God's church that he purchased with the blood of his son. And so Paul reminds the Corinthians that, are, that they are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now we usually think of, of being sanctified as, as something that we're becoming. We think of being sanctified in the terms of, of progressive sanctification, where we are growing or being made more like Jesus. But that is not the sense that Paul uses the word here. He says to the Corinthians that they are already sanctified, that they are already set apart. They're set apart in Christ. They're set apart for Christ. I'm going to talk about this later, but look down for a second at verse 9. He says, you were called into the fellowship of his son. 
called into fellowship with Christ. He says to the Corinthians that they are called to be saints. Called to be saints. The Roman Catholic Church claims to be able to confer the title of saint on on an individual who has lived a life that the Pope deems to be heroically virtuous. And when at least two miracles can be attested to when, when people pray to the name of that person. There's absolutely no biblical justification for this practice. We talked about this on Friday night. Beloved, this room is full of saints. And you have been conferred this title of saint, not by me or any pope, but you have been conferred the title of saint by God himself. And to be a saint literally means It's the same root word as sanctified. It means to be set apart for God. It's not that the Corinthians lived lives that were were particularly virtuous, but they are still declared saints. They're declared saints not by their own virtue, but by the virtue that has been imputed to them or given to them from Christ. Notice, too, that they are not set apart as individuals. They are called to be saints together. Saints together. They are called to be saints together with with each other in the local church and also in the wider church. But their their lives, what was going on in the Corinthian church, didn't reflect the reality of their identity. So Paul reminds them of what they are. He reminds them of what they are called to be. Why do you come to church? How do you view this church? How do you see your role in this church? And how do you see the role of this church in your life? Are you holding back somehow? Or are you all in? Are you here for God and for His church, or are you here to get your personal spiritual needs met? Again, this is not your corporate quiet time. There is something far, far bigger going on when we meet together. We come together as as part of the universal church, as part of the body of Christ that exists around the world. But there is a difference between the relationship that you are called to in this local church and the broader universal church. Yes, we love and pray for and support the universal church, but here, in this local church, this is called this is where we are called to live out the, the 30 plus one another commands that are given to us in the New Testament, right here in this local church. This is where we are primarily called to show hospitality to one another, to serve one another, to submit to one another. This happens uniquely in the context of the local church. We are called to worship God together. Not just on Sundays. Not even on Sundays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. I'm not talking here about being here whenever the doors are open. Many of you drive a long way to get here, and I'm very thankful for that. As you commit yourself and your time and your effort and your finances. But what are you doing when you are here? What are you doing when you are here? Are you opening yourself up to others? Are you seeking to selflessly edify others? Are you serving others? And what about when you're not here? Are you talking to and thinking about and praying for your church family? Is it really out of sight, is out of mind? You will think about the things that you love. 
My son is hooked up to all kinds of monitors right now that measure his health. He has monitors that measure his heart rate and his breathing rate and his oxygen levels and his carbon dioxide levels and his blood pressure. You have a very effective monitor of your spiritual health, this church. Your attitude and behavior toward the church is a measure of your love for the church and ultimately is a measure of your love for God. As John said in 1 John 4.20, that he who does not love his brother cannot love God. Are you plugged in to this local church? Sometimes there won't be a good reading on, on Liam's monitor because the, one of the wires is loose. And so it'll look like his heart rate will jump up really high or his, his, his oxygen levels will drop really low, but it's, we, we, we've learned it's not a true reading because one of the wires is loose. Is your wire loose? Is your wire loose? Are the readings wonky because you're not truly plugged in? And you can be here whenever the doors are open and still not really be here. We have loose wires. It's, it's diagnostic in and of itself. We're not talking here about whether, whether you can get along or whether you can have a conversation about the work about work or the weather or hockey it's easy to get along with others for a couple of hours on sunday we're also not talking about whether you can play volleyball together you can play volleyball with people that you don't even like consider the love that you are called to john 13:34 the love that gives your very life for others. J.C. Ryle said, A tree will always be known by its fruit, and true Christians will always be discovered by their habits, their tastes, and affections. Do you desire to spend time with real Christians, those who are eager to grow in Christ or with those of the world? Do you seek conversations that mutually edify or do you prefer just to talk about fluff? Do you seek opportunities to selflessly serve one another or are you, selfless, are you selfishly serving yourself? Now, I am really excited about what is going on here. And I see many of you doing the very things that God is calling us to. I believe true fellowship is one of the unique characteristics of this church. And that you can see, when you look around on the, after the service on Sunday, you can see open Bibles. And you can see people talking about the things of God. People opening up with each other and wanting to be real with each other. People talking about the things that they're, that they're struggling with. People asking each other, how can, how can I pray for you, brother? How can I serve you, sister? And I'm continually amazed at the way that you are pouring out that love on my family. It blows us away to see the way that you are loving us in the midst of this trial. This is the hardest thing that I have ever been through. But you are helping to carry me. You are loving me. You are loving my wife and our son. And God is glorified in that.
And the staff in the hospital, the other families in the hospital see that. And God is glorified. These things are happening. People are, are serving behind the scenes. There, there are people that, that work in this church that, that you don't even know that they've been here. They're like stealth. They come in and they clean something and then they leave and nobody even knows that they've been here. People are coming early and, and shoveling. Thankfully, that's behind us, but they're, they're shoveling and they're, they're preparing communion. They're, they're making food. They're serving each other in practical ways. They're praying for each other. These things are happening. But they're not happening to the degree that they should. Remember, the standard for our love for each other is the love that Christ has for the church, that he gave himself for the church. He died for us. so that we can have fellowship with him together. We all have plenty of room for growth. None of us have attained to the level of love that God requires of us. And if that's true here, it was certainly true in the Corinthian church. And Paul knew the problems that were facing the Corinthian church. He saw the, sack of, the lack of love, and, and yet he demonstrated amazing grace for the Corinthian church. This is the second ground for Paul's confidence for the Corinthian church. Charis. Charis. Now this is probably a new word to you. Charis is simply the Greek word for grace. Why did Paul demonstrate amazing charis for the Corinthian church? Because Paul was a recipient of the amazing charis of God. Paul received God's saving charis on the road to Damascus. While on the road to persecuting Christ, he received grace from Christ. God would have been well within his rights to smash Paul, to condemn him to eternal hellfire, to pour out his, his cup of wrath on him. Paul hated Christ and tried to destroy his church, but Christ set his love on Paul and called Paul to build his church. And so as a recipient of God's grace, Paul was quick to extend that grace to the Corinthians. In verse 3, he prays for God's grace for them. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he asks the Lord to extend grace to this sinful church. He asks the Lord to give them peace, the only peace that really matters. People try to seek peace in all kinds of different things in drugs, in alcohol, in illicit relationships, in fun, in friends, in family. But the only source of real peace is God, and it only comes through grace, the grace of God in Christ. Like Paul, we were at war with God. We were enemies with God, but we have been reconciled to God by the death of His Son. And peace with God is the basis for our peace with others. If the Corinthians knew that their peace was with God, suing each other would be unfathomable. If you know peace with God, holding a grudge against your brother or sister is unfathomable. Gossiping about them is unfathomable. Verse 4, Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Paul actually gives thanks for the Corinthian church. I was convicted as I considered this. 
Now, I am thankful for you. But I was convicted of the, my failure to actively and directly give thanks to God for you. For you as individuals, for you corporately, as we have been called together in Christ. To give thanks, we, we talked about this last Sunday in the Lord's Supper. To give thanks not what, just for what God has done for me in a, as an individual, but to give thanks for what God has done for us as a church family. This was Paul's attitude and it should be ours as well. When we love each other as we should, we will thank God for each other. And Paul knew that the Corinthians fell well short of this love, but he intentionally called to mind the grace of God that the Corinthians had received. And again, Christ is the only source of that grace. And now here in verses 5 to 7, Paul turns to discuss the evidences of grace among the Corinthians. Now this part blows me away. The very things that Paul criticizes them for later on, here he lists as evidence that God is at work in them. He talks about them being enriched in all speech and all knowledge. Now, these things were the, 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 the testimony of Christ was confirmed in them because of these things. Not just these things, they were not lacking, he says, in any spiritual gift. Now, speech here could refer to the ability to declare the things of God in general, but, but here probably, given the context of this letter, it probably refers to the gift of tongues. And similarly, knowledge could refer to knowledge about God, the things for which the, the, the Corinthians were proud, or it could refer to the gift of prophecy. We'll spend a, a lot more time on this when we get to chapters 12 and 14. But the charisma... The charisma, which means simply spiritual gift, comes from the same root as grace, God's grace, from charis. Charisma is from charis. And people spend far too much time focusing on the extraordinary charismatic gifts, either promoting them or denying them, but they spend far too little time focusing on what the spiritual gifts are supposed to be for, for the building of the church. The Corinthians were using these gifts selfishly for building themselves up, not for building up the church. But selfish use of the charisma or not, Paul says that they were not lacking in any spiritual gift. Now, there's a lesson for us here as well. Have you ever been annoyed at someone who was spouting off their Bible knowledge so that their pride was obvious to everybody but them? Have you ever heard someone boasting about their virtues or their accomplishments? Then think about Paul's attitude towards the Corinthians. If the Apostle Paul could use these, these very things that they were using as an occasion for building themselves up and give thanks to God for them because of those things, then we too can learn to offer grace in the midst of others' shortcomings as those upon whom God has set His grace. But ultimately, Paul could have confidence in the Corinthian church for one reason alone. Paul could have confidence in the Corinthian church because of Christ. It is all grounded in Christ. Paul refers to Christ in every single verse of this passage. Paul, an apostle of Christ, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, to those called upon who call upon the name of our Lord Christ Jesus, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace of God in Christ Jesus, waiting for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. First, Paul knows that he has received grace in Christ Jesus. Paul knew 
Paul knew that God's love for him was not based on any goodness in him. He knew this intimately. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Later on, he will refer to himself as the chief of sinners. Paul knew that God's love for him was based on God's grace alone. He knew that it wasn't because of good works that he had done or good works that he would do. He had received grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he knew that he had been set apart by God before he was even born, Galatians 1.15. In fact, it was before the foundation of the earth. But Paul also knew that the Corinthians had received grace in Christ Jesus. As was true of him, their salvation was not based on their goodness, but by grace alone. They too were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Corinthians didn't have to measure up. They couldn't measure up. But they were counted righteous. They had received the imputation of Christ's righteousness, all of the good deeds that Christ had done, given to them by grace. So Paul didn't need to punish the Corinthians for their sin because God had already punished the Son in their place. And finally, Paul knows that Christ is faithful. In verse 7, we see that the Corinthians were waiting for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul knew that he, that Christ will sustain them to the end, that Christ will keep them guiltless. Similarly, it says in Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Paul knew that Jesus Christ was the founder and perfecter of their faith. And so he could have confidence. He could have confidence that God finishes what he started. That nothing could separate the Corinthians from the love of Jesus, of God in Christ Jesus, just as nothing could separate him from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Is that your confidence? Is that your confidence? Are, are you confident for this church because of the call and the charis and the Christ of God? Because that is the only confidence that we can have. We will sin against each other. We will. But the only confidence that you can have is the confidence that is based on Christ. So when you foster that attitude, when you have that confidence in Christ that overflows into confidence and hope for one another, it's going to change your attitude towards one another. It can't help but overflow into the way that you deal with one another. When you feel that you have to confront somebody for their sin, you will do it with grace because of the grace that you have received. And for, we're talking about a believer here. You, you will do this with confidence that Christ has worked in them and that Christ will work in them. I would love to see a culture of encouragement develop in this church. A culture where we are quicker to see evidences of grace in one another than each other's sins and faults. So ask yourself, 
Are you someone who is quick to see evidences of grace in one another? It is a mark of humility to see it, especially in those whose sin is more obvious. I want to give you some homework. Ask others. Ask those who are closest to you, am I that kind of person? Am I the kind of person who, who points out evidences of grace in others? Do you feel encouraged when you're around me or do you feel discouraged when you're around me? Again, I have to confess, using this pulpit as, as my personal confessional, that, that again, I have failed in this. I have failed in this, and, and I fear that our church culture has become too much one of, of being quick to point out the flaws in one another. And a failure to recognize evidences of grace in one another. That's my prayer. That's my prayer that, that in the power of the Holy Spirit, that this attitude that the Apostle Paul had for the Corinthian church will be evident in us. That we will grow in our love for God and our love for each other. That we will genuinely grow together in Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have called us to be holy, that you call us saints, set apart for you. Lord, and we confess that we often give ourselves far too much grace and don't offer that grace to others. So Lord, I pray that you will help us to consider afresh the call that we have in Christ Jesus, the grace that we have received in Christ Jesus, and that this will overflow with thanksgiving for each other and love for one another, and that, that our love would abound for you in saving us and changing us into the image of your Son. We ask this for his sake. Amen.